0: My name is Alec Crawford, and this is Stay, a podcast about sustainability, technology, artificial intelligence, and how they impact you at home, at work, and around the world. I am discussing these topics with high-profile guests to give you important information that goes much deeper than other sources. Find out answers to questions like, can artificial intelligence save the planet? And how does ESG investing affect you? We can build a better, sustainable future together. Hi, it's Alec Crawford, and our special guest today is Patrick White, project manager at the Nuclear Innovation Alliance. So, welcome, Patrick. Great.
1: Thanks so much, Alex. Happy to be here.
0: So let's uh, kick it off. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your career journey and how you ended up taking your dream job at the Nuclear Innovation Alliance? Great.
1: Thanks. Yeah. So career journey was really have always kind of been interested in nuclear engineering kind of throughout my entire life. So when I was looking at college opportunities, the really the really big focus was how can I get into nuclear energy? What does that take? So I started at uh, Carnegie Mellon University, did a bachelor's and master's in mechanical engineering there with a focus on kind of nuclear energy, nuclear energy systems. Um, after graduating, went and worked in the commercial nuclear industry for about three years, uh, working for an engineering consulting firm out of uh, Alexandria, Virginia, really looking at kind of how to do engineering for the existing nuclear power plants and then start thinking about the design of kind of the future nuclear systems. Uh, while I was there, I got really interested in kind of the big picture policy questions around nuclear. Designing nuclear reactors is really, really cool, but there are a lot of questions on how we actually get these things built and how we get these things deployed at scale. So I decided that, hey, this is a really good opportunity to go back to graduate school and really focus on these questions full time. So I started up at MIT in 2015, uh, pursuing my master's and my PhD in nuclear science and engineering. So while I was there, I uh, was a co-author on the 2018 Future of Nuclear Energy in a Carbon constrained World Report, a big report that MIT released in 2018 that really focused on what role nuclear energy could play in deep decarbonization. Um, got to lead the sections on regulation and licensing of advanced fission systems. And then for my PhD work, focused on the regulation and licensing of commercial fusion systems. Uh, really interesting, really novel technology and trying to figure out what does it look like to actually build one of these things. Uh, graduated in 2021 and took a job with the Nuclear Innovation Alliance. So at the Nuclear Innovation Alliance, I lead our work on kind of regulatory modernization, uh, deployment of advanced nuclear technologies, really just trying to figure out what it takes for nuclear energy to be a climate solution at scale that we think we need.
0: So, Patrick, what's the scope of your role at the Nuclear Innovation cool. Alliance? Great.
1: Uh, So at the Nuclear Innovation Alliance, I lead a lot of work trying to figure out how we can make nuclear energy a climate solution and what are potentially the barriers that we're interested in addressing. So one of the big things that people often say when they're interested in nuclear energy is what about the regulation? Is the regulation going to be a really big barrier? And so what I do is take a look at what are the regulations we currently have for nuclear power plants and how can we make them more effective, more efficient, and what are new regulations we could put in the future that potentially make it easier for us to deploy nuclear energy while still having the level of safety that we expect from the technology. So that's kind of one big part of my job. Uh, The other kind of big scope of my work is really looking at what are the policies at a state and federal level that we can talk about that are gonna enable nuclear energy deployment. How do we think about nuclear being included in things like clean energy standards? What are the tax requirements? What are ways that we can try to make it kind of an attractive financial investment so that as companies and policymakers are trying to figure out what our clean energy future looks like, what role nuclear can play. So, kind of with all of that, it's a lot—a little bit of policy development, a little bit of education, a little bit of outreach, a little bit of technical analysis—kind of across the board there. But everything advanced nuclear
0: sounds great. And so, for those aspiring uh, nuclear engineers out there, what did uh, what advice can you can you give them to attain their dream jobs?
1: Oh that's a great question. Um, I think a lot of it is trying to figure out what types of things you actually like doing on a day-to-day basis. Uh, nuclear engineering is a really interesting field where you can find yourself doing detailed simulations and analysis. You can be out there trying to build new systems. You can be talking with policymakers. Um, it's really trying to figure out what parts of the energy problem that you really find yourself most excited about solving and then trying to figure out how to plug into that. And that can take a lot of opportunities both uh, while you're in school looking at getting degrees Um, Not just in nuclear engineering, but in other related fields, and then in potential internships and opportunities afterwards. Um, One of the things that people might not understand or might not guess is that a nuclear power plant actually has very few nuclear engineers. Um, There are a lot of things at a nuclear power plant that require other engineering disciplines. It requires mechanical engineers, civil engineers, chemical engineers, and even for people that aren't so interested in doing kind of a full engineering degree, uh, from the maintenance, the technicians, people that do something called health physics and kind of monitor the radiation implants. There are a lot of different opportunities. So if you're interested in kind of getting into the space and making a big contribution, it's really trying to figure out, okay, what part of that sounds most interesting to you? And then working with people to figure out kind of where the best opportunities are.
0: Awesome. So you mentioned safety earlier, and I'm I'm curious, what do you think the future of nuclear energy is in uh, in the U.S.? So I think the
1: future of nuclear energy in the United States is really going to depend on how seriously we're taking climate change and how serious we are about meeting our uh, essentially clean energy goals. Um, If we're only interested in maybe reducing our carbon emissions by 70 or 80%, most of the modeling that I see says, yeah, just build more solar panels and build more windmills. Um, Ultimately, you can use kind of carbon energy sources like natural gas to help kind of balance out the energy supply and energy demand that we have at the end of the day. But if we're really serious about hitting clean energy goals, about hitting 100 percent clean energy and not just kind of reducing carbon emitting resources from our electricity, but also from things like industrial processes and transportation, well, we're going to need a lot of clean energy and hitting that 100 percent more can be really hard because we need to think about not just how to meet it on one day out of the year, but how to hit, hit it 365 days out of the year. And so in that case, I think nuclear energy can play a really good role because it's ultimately a complementary energy source. It's not nuclear or solar or wind. It's gonna be nuclear and solar and wind and batteries and other technologies we probably haven't thought of. And ultimately it's that full suite that's gonna get us, um, hopefully, the idea of affordable, reliable, and clean energy.
0: So talk a little bit about high temperature, steam, electrolysis. Could this supply a significant amount of so-called pink hydrogen in the U.S. and the rest of the world?
1: Yep. So this is a really interesting question. I think it's and it relates really, really well to the previous question. What role can nuclear play? So traditionally, when people think about nuclear energy, it's really just talking about it as an electricity source. Um, we tend to think of nuclear as a nice kind of baseload energy source is what it's talked about in the industry. You bring a power plant up to 100% power and you leave it there for 18 to 24 months and that works really well but if we're talking about trying to decarbonize not just electricity production but also other parts of our economy we have to think about kind of other ways to either store energy or transport energy and hydrogen like you described is one of those really good opportunities Um, one of the things that's unique about nuclear is one it's high capacity factor the idea that it can produce uh, energy reliably at a very high level for long periods of time And with some of the advanced nuclear technology that we're building, um, it can also operate at very high temperatures. So that combination of reliable electricity and high temperatures starts getting us to the heart of your question, high temperature steam electrolysis. And so for anyone out there that's not familiar with this, it's basically the idea that if you take steam and you try to split it with electricity, it's much more efficient to do so at high temperatures than at low temperatures. And so if you can have this combination of high temperature steam and electricity, you can create uh, hydrogen gas very efficiently. And so um, I think there's are a lot of interest out there with advanced nuclear developers saying, okay, what is ultimately the market for hydrogen going to be? Um, is this something that we're going to favor? What role is it going to play with energy storage with comparison to let's say lithium ion batteries. And so I think nuclear is well positioned to do that. And we're already excited to see some kind of industrial partners out there starting to explore the use of hydrogen production, um, both at um, existing nuclear power plants and in future nuclear power plants. So uh, for anyone that was following federal legislation in the United States, um, there's this idea of hydrogen hubs that the U.S. Department of Energy is going to be funding. And one of the hydrogen hubs is actually going to be a nuclear hydrogen hub. So it's going to be a focused research and development center where we're we're going to try to demonstrate and figure out all the the questions related to how can we try to produce this pink hydrogen with uh, nuclear. And it just kind of adds to that rainbow of hydrogen colors that we have out there.
0: And it's probably not commonly known that the U.S. generates about 20 percent of its electricity from nuclear power, but France does 70 percent. Can you talk about the impact of nuclear power on energy security and grid stability in the U.S.?
1: Definitely. So when you start talking about grid stability and grid reliability, it's a lot of questions around what are your fuel sources and then how are you trying to figure out kind of the balance between the supply and demand throughout the course of an hour, a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade? And so when you think about kind of the full suite of energy sources, it's trying to think about what are the advantages and disadvantages of each. One of the advantages of nuclear energy is what it's called. It's kind of described by some energy uh, market analysts as firm energy. And the idea of firm energy is that it's something that's reliable and dispatchable. When you need to turn on a nuclear power plant, you can turn it on and you're not necessarily subject to what the weather is that day in that part of the country. And so when we think about the idea of trying to hit kind of clean energy goals with a whole suite of technologies, well, even with the best solar uh, solar panels and wind farms, there are going to be times where those resources aren't available. And so we can either back it up with 100% uh, battery storage, that could be extremely costly to make sure that we have that reliability over really long periods of time, or we can think about complementing it with advanced nuclear energy sources or conventional nuclear energy sources. And so in this way, we have a resource that's firm or dispatchable so that when the grid needs it, the nuclear power plant can supply that electricity. And so I think that's something where you kind of see it as helping to balance out some of the other resources we have to meet that kind of overall picture. Um, The other thing that you can really talk about is the idea of energy security. Um, One of the challenges with some energy resources is that you're constantly using fuel. So this is a really good example, I think, for coal or for natural gas or for oil power plants. Um, And so you have to make sure you're constantly getting these supplies of fuel on a very, very regular basis to make sure the power plant keeps operating with a nuclear plant. um, When you actually load the nuclear reactor before it starts operation, you'll put in enough fuel for that reactor to run at full power for anywhere from 18 to 24 months at a time. And so that means that you have a lot more reliability. that once you load up the reactor, you're not worried about the next truck, train or tanker car bringing in fuel for that facility. And so you've got a lot more stability in terms of maybe weather events or geopolitical events. Um, there's still a lot of questions we have about trying to make sure that you maintain kind of the global energy supply and the global supplies for nuclear fuels. But at least in the short term, it kind of helps to limit some of the volatility that you might see with energy sources. Um, I'm based out of the Northeast, and during really cold winters, we might run into places, we might run into challenges related to natural gas constraints, for example, where the pipeline just can't bring enough fuel and some power plants aren't able to operate. With a nuclear plant, you won't have to worry about that because you've already got the fuel in the reactor.
0: That's great. And as a project manager at the Nuclear Innovation Alliance, what what do you think your biggest challenge is uh, over the next year?
1: Yeah, so I think the biggest challenge over the course of the next year is some of the changes that we're seeing at the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission related to the licensing of advanced reactors. There are a lot of companies, a lot of private companies out there that are really excited right now about what role advanced nuclear energy can play in the future, And they're interested in starting to see kind of the development, and the deployment of their first reactor technologies. So there's a company down in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Kairos Power, that's looking at demonstrating one of their test reactors. And there are two large companies, um, X Energy and TerraPower, that are interested in building kind of their demonstration facilities that are being supported by the U.S. Department of Energy. Um, X Energy is building their demonstration facility in Richland, Washington, Eastern Washington State. It's a high temperature gas reactor. And uh, TerraPower, which is a company funded by Bill Gates, is looking at building a sodium fast reactor in Kemmerer, Wyoming. And so these technologies are really exciting. The companies have a lot of funding behind it. But the question is, how is the Nuclear Regulatory Commission going to be able to effectively and efficiently uh, license these designs? And so one thing that we're going to look at over the course of the next year is how can we try to use the existing regulatory frameworks that we have that weren't necessarily developed for these technologies and adapt them for these new advanced reactor technologies And then how can we try to create new regulatory processes so we can make the process more efficient and more predictable? If you're an investor, if you're a utility that wants to deploy a new nuclear power plant, if someone tells you, oh, this project might take four years to license, but it might take eight if things don't go well, that's not necessarily the market signal that you want to make a significant investment. So how can we try to work with the NRC to say, what changes can we make to the processes and the regulations so we still get the level of safety that we need, but we can try to make the process something that's more amenable to actually make an investment in deploying energy? And so there's a lot of work right now going on at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to both um, adapt the existing rules and create a new set of rules. And I think we're going to see a lot of work on that in the next year. And so I think trying to make sure that that process goes well. So we end up with a regulatory framework that enables innovation rather than something that we're going to be fighting with for the next decade is probably the biggest challenge that I'll be working through.
0: Yeah, that totally makes sense. So so we talked a little bit about uh, base power. Talk about your approach to flexible power operations for nuclear plants.
1: Yep. So it's one of the one of the really interesting misconceptions about nuclear power plants is that they're kind of this idea of a big baseload unit that can only come up to 100% power and then can never change its power level. Um, they've often described it as kind of the inflexible power unit. And so the idea of baseload power, inflexible power, worked out really well historically in the United States because we knew that we had kind of this uh, large amount of electricity demand that was never changing, the idea of the baseload demand, and then we'd have the variable demand on top. And these would be the demands that would change kind of on the hourly, daily, weekly basis, just based on things of even, hey, more people are gonna use electricity and turn on their lights in the early evening and then turn them off when they go to bed. And so you see those demands changes in the, you see that change in the electrical demands curves. And because we constantly have to produce the electricity to meet the demand, we have to make sure we have power plants that can ramp up and ramp down to meet that demand as it changes over time. So in the past, people have looked at nuclear plants and said, Hey, nuclear plants are expensive to build, but low cost to operate. And so from an economics point of view, it makes sense to operate these power plants at their maximum possible output for as much as possible. That was the most economical way to do it. And then you could use other energy sources that were maybe cheap to build, but expensive to operate like natural gas and use that to meet that kind of variable demand that you thought saw throughout the course of the, the day or kind of the changing even on a weekly or seasonal basis. However, That's the way we talked about energy, I think, for the better part of probably 60 to 70 years in the United States. But now a bunch of things are changing. One, natural gas isn't that expensive anymore. Uh, Technologies like hydraulic fracturing or fracking have really brought down the cost of natural gas. Second big change that we're seeing is the idea of more renewable energy on the grid. So now instead of having this baseload energy source that we can basically rely or this baseload energy demand that we can rely on, we're now seeing this idea of, okay, what happens when we have renewables that are coming online and potentially changing the shape of that curve throughout the course of the day? We've got solar pe- we got solar energy when the sun's shining, and we've got wind energy when the wind's blowing, but those are going to change on a much more cyclic basis. And so we need to figure out, okay, how's the rest of the grid going to adapt around it if we're really interested in using that as a clean energy source? And so these nuclear plants that used to be able to be operated at 100% power, maybe now can't be. And so there have been a lot of conversations in the nuclear industry about how can we take nuclear power plants and adapt them to be more flexible in this idea of flexible power operations. Um, The first thing to know is that the U.S. power plants were actually designed to be flexible. Um, We think of them as being baseload because that's the way they've been historically operated. But when these plants were first being constructed in the 1950s, 60s and 70s, the utilities at that time thought that nuclear was going to play... Uh, nuclear is going to easily produce 50 to 70 to 80 percent of U.S. electricity by the year 2000. And so they built these plants with the capacity and the capabilities to actually change their power level. Um, That might kind of sound like a myth that I'm just kind of throwing back and saying, oh, that's what they plan to do. But the best example that we can have is actually taking a look over at France. Oh, pardon me. If we take a look at France, because they use uh, nuclear energy to produce 70 percent of the electricity, they actually have their reactors designed and operated to produce this kind of flexible power operations and match the grid more effectively. And it's through a combination of kind of design and operational strategies, but they're able to have a nuclear power plant that can change its power output to meet the grid demands. And so as we take a look at the plants we currently have in the United States, uh, reactor operators are already trying to figure out, okay, what are the capabilities that our plants still have that we could use to help be more flexible and meet some of the grid demands? Um, And so we're seeing that kind of across the country, A couple of really good examples are some of the uh, nuclear power plants in the Pacific Northwest, um, specifically the Columbia Generating Station, changes its power output based on the hydroelectric production off the Columbia River. And so they're already kind of matching the seasonal changes that they see. In the Midwest, uh, some of the plants that are owned by Constellation are starting to see kind of changes in their demand curve based on the amount of wind generation that we're seeing deployed in the Midwest United States. And so those plants are having to change their power output on a weekly basis just because you use less electricity on the weekend than you do on the week because people aren't necessarily going into the office every day. And so we're seeing kind of a lot of adaptation in the existing plants and kind of exploring what the capabilities are. When we take a look at nuclear power plants moving forward, there's a really big interest in how can we design power plants to be more flexible because we're going to be expecting to see more renewable energy on the grid and not less. And so how can nuclear energy really be designed to complement those sources? And so it's really being done by a combination of factors. The first factor is just designing the reactors so they can change their power level more easily. Um, there's a whole bunch of nuclear science and engineering that goes into that. It's not necessarily the easiest thing in the world. It's not just like revving your engine up or revving your engine down, but there are things you can do in the design to make that possible. The other thing that they're, they're doing is trying to look at actually integrating energy storage into the design of the reactor itself. So rather than having a nuclear power plant that maybe will charge a battery, and then that battery could be used to meet the changing demands throughout the day, One of the things that uh, companies are looking at, specifically that Terrapower, the company I mentioned earlier, they're actually looking at doing what's called integrated thermal energy storage. So I mentioned earlier that a nuclear power plant is probably most effective when it runs at 100 percent power constantly because it costs a lot to construct and it's fairly inexpensive to operate. Well, Terrapower has taken a look at this technology and said, "Okay, how can we try to match that with a way to try to change the electricity output on the end? And so their design actually uses a reactor that's going to operate at 300 megawatts and produce 300 megawatts of thermal energy. And then that's going to be paired with what's called a large molten salt heat storage system that can then be used to kind of store that thermal energy that will ultimately be connected to something that can produce electricity. So the idea is that the reactor will constantly produce 300 megawatts, and then this large thermal energy storage system will be able to vary its power output from 500 megawatts to 100 megawatts depending on what the needs of the electrical system are. So in this way, we're starting to solve some of those energy storage questions that we're currently looking at for all energy sources, only with the nuclear plant it's being integrated into the design from the very beginning. And so hopefully that means that we end up with kind of a more efficient, more effective system and something that's already gonna match kind of the flexible needs that we're gonna see in the future.
0: That sounds super cool. Um, Speaking of uh, molten salt, uh, let's talk about generation four reactors. What's most exciting to you?
1: Yeah, so I think when we talk about Generation 4 reactors, what we're really interested in are what are the potential changes that we're seeing from the light water reactor technology that we have today. So light water reactors are pretty straightforward. You run liquid water over your, your hot uranium fuel. It's going to remove the heat. And ultimately, that heat is what we use to make electricity. It's worked really well in the United States. We've operated them safely for 70 years. But there are questions about how we can either maybe change what that fuel looks like or what the coolant is that's going over the fuel help try to improve things like the operational characteristics, the safety of the design. And so there are a number of kind of different technology approaches that are out there right now that different developers are investigating based on what the potential advantages are. And this whole suite of what we call kind of non-light water reactors is often referred to as kind of generation four reactors. It's the next generation of nuclear technology. A couple of ones that I'll hit on right now that I'm really excited about. Uh, The first is something called a high temperature gas reactor, an HTGR. And so, in a high-temperature gas reactor, we've changed two specific things. The first is the type of fuel that we're using, and the second is the type of coolant that we're using. So, in the current light water reactors, I'll talk about the fuel first. We currently have um, what are called fuel rods, which are small little ceramic pieces of uranium that are in long, thin metal tubes. And that works really well for the existing reactors. But one of the challenges is that those pellets can crack during operations, release radioactive material, and then we're relying on those long, thin metal tubes to essentially contain any types of radioactive gases. Um, It can be done very effectively, but one of the challenges is that in severe accidents, if you have maybe a loss of the ability to cool your reactor or some other kind of mechanical upsets occur, those uh, fuel rods can release radiation. And so that can be a potential hazard and something you have to design around. With high temperature gas reactors, they use something called triso fuel. And it's tristructural isotropic fuel. But in short, what it is is essentially a small poppy seed of uranium fuel that's then wrapped in layers of carbon. And those layers of carbon function as a barrier to prevent the release of radioactive material during operations and after operations. And so the idea is this becomes a very stable fuel form where the little layers of carbon can actually hold in all that radioactive material and are stable to incredibly high temperatures. Instead of being stable up to hundreds of degrees centigrade, they're stable up to thousands of degrees centigrade. So even in the worst case accident, we don't expect those little fuel uh, kernels, as they're called, to fail. And so it really increases the potential safety of these high temperature gas reactors. The other advantage that we see with HGGR, I've talked a little bit about the fuel, these TRISO fuel, is um, the 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 coolant that we're using so instead of using liquid water which can boil and we have to maintain it under high temperature or high pressure to make sure it doesn't boil you use helium gas and so the helium gas as it flows over the reactor will remove the heat and they can use that to make electricity or you can think about it of using it for other processes and so you can achieve much higher temperatures and that gives you really high efficiency but it also gives you the opportunity to partner with other energy needs. So a really good example of that is industrial processes. Right now, if you want to achieve really high proce- or really high temperatures for certain industrial processes, whether it's producing chemicals, producing materials, making steel, the traditional form is burn natural gas. Works really effectively. It works very well to get the high temperatures you need in those furnaces, but ultimately it's releasing carbon dioxide. And if we're really interested in hitting our clean energy goals, we need to figure out how to get carbon emitting greenhouse gas processes out of our system. And so one of the things that some of the companies are looking at is how could you partner a high temperature gas reactor with some of these chemical production facilities and utilize these unique high temperatures that come off the reactor using the gas coolant. So we're really excited about this, and we've actually already started to see some industrial companies are really interested in it. So, for example, uh, Dow Chemical has recently signed uh, MOU with X-Energy to actually deploy one of these high temperature gas reactors at one of their Gulf refining sites. And the idea is that they're going to do a lot of this chemical processing with a nuclear reactor instead of burning uh, fossil fuels for it. And so that's kind of a really unique opportunity for these uh, one of these Gen 4 reactors. The other one I'll hit on just because it's uh, again kind of one that's farthest along and currently is getting a lot of interest in research and development is what's called a sodium fast reactor. And so in this reactor technology, instead of using uh, liquid water or helium gas to go over the fuel, we actually take the uh, uranium fuel, we make it into long metallic cylinders, and then we run liquid sodium or liquid metal over the outside of the reactor. Now, liquid sodium might sound a little bit frightening. Um, For anyone that can remember the high school chemistry classes, when you mix liquid sodium with water, it will catch fire. And so from from a design point of view, it can be a little bit challenging, but liquid sodium has a lot of really, really big advantages when it comes to the design and operation of a nuclear system. The primary advantage is that it has what's called a very high heat capacity. And so the idea is that this liquid sodium can store a lot of energy and really efficiently move it away from the reactor core. So by using a sodium fast reactor, you can actually kind of shrink the size of the reactor core that you need. And if you had an accident, the core can actually absorb a lot of the energy without allowing the fuel to overheat and potentially release radionuclides. And so this is the technology that X-Energy, or that uh, TerraPower is using for their natrium design. And the idea is that you can design a very small, compact, safe nuclear reactor using the sodium-fast reactor technology. There's also an advantage uh, with something called the neutron spectrum. Again, this is a a whole set of other discussions on how you design nuclear reactors. But in principle, by utilizing uh, neutrons that are going slightly faster than we use in the existing reactors, it potentially allows us to split atoms that otherwise wouldn't be accessible. And so that uh, might allow us to use the fuel that we currently have more efficiently, and it could reduce the amount of total waste per megawatt hour of electricity generated. And so there are a lot of caveats and a lot of things you have to work through in terms of the design and engineering, but the sodium fast reactors, again, very safe, high temperatures, efficient to design, and then potentially are more effective at utilizing the fuel. So I think those are kind of two of the technologies that we're seeing that are under development right now that I think I'm really I'm really excited about because it'll be very interesting to see what their deployment looks like this decade.
0: Awesome. So you talked about sodium fast reactors. Can you discuss the potential for those and other small modular reactors in reducing carbon emissions?
1: Yeah. So one of the really big challenges with building commercial nuclear power plants has traditionally been the size. Um, So one of the things that we're working through with regards to nuclear power plants is the idea of economies of scale. If you double the size of the nuclear power plant, it doesn't necessarily double the cost, but it can double the amount of revenue that you generate. And so over the history of the construction of nuclear reactors in the United States, we saw this kind of race for bigger and bigger reactors with the idea that it could make the projects more and more economical. So the initial reactors started maybe at 50 or 60 megawatts, and then the 50 to 60 megawatts of thermal energy while some of the reactors we currently have today are up near 3,000 or 4,000 megawatts of thermal energy. So the size just grew dramatically. And that worked really well in terms of the economies of scale, but one of the things that we ran into was that defi- that significantly changes both the investment profile and the construction challenges of operating and designing one of these reactors. If you, you can imagine, if you're a large utility and you've got a balance sheet of billions of dollars, the idea of spending hey, $2 billion on a nuclear power plant project might be a reasonable investment. If you're a small municipal utility that only has an annual revenue of a couple hundred million dollars a year, a $2 million investment is essentially betting the farm on a project that you might not be sure how it's going to work out. And so it's not fiscally responsible. And so one of the challenges that we saw as the energy markets evolved in the United States from the 1970s to the 1990s to today is that we lost a lot of the kind of really large state regulated utilities in a process called market deregulation in electricity markets. And so there's a lot less appetite now for these multi-billion dollar new energy production projects. You, companies are much more interested in smaller investments that make more sense for their uh, kind of long-term portfolio. And so there's kind of this push now of could we make nuclear power plants smaller to appeal to investors and appeal to utilities? The second challenge is what we call mega projects. And so this is a phenomena that you see really across all uh, sectors of construction, that as projects start to grow larger and larger in size, the project management challenges associated with it also grow. When was the last time that you heard about a $10 billion construction project that was finished on time on budget? It's something where it's probably no fault of anyone, but it's just incredibly challenging to do. And so there's this really interesting principle that some of the advanced reactor developers are looking at, of can we try to reduce the scale of our projects Build less things on site in terms of these large mega projects, and instead try to build them in smaller increments in factories and have the idea of kind of modular construction that enables you to kind of focus on the construction and operation of smaller units and hopefully hit cost and the budget targets that you're really interested in. And so I think all this is really kind of pushing towards this idea of small modular reactors. How can uh, developers and utilities start to think about these smaller units? that are both kind of a better investment opportunity for uh, a large number of utilities. It's not just the largest couple of utilities that can afford to make these project investments. And how do these projects essentially enable the ability for construction companies to hit their uh, cost and their schedule targets? And so I think as we're talking about kind of small modular reactors moving forward, it's gonna be a discussion at the state level and at the federal level about, okay, what are the actual demands of the grid in this area? And then what are the different energy resources that can plug into it? And we think that small modular reactors are gonna be a really good opportunity for a utility to say, yep, instead of buying a thousand megawatt reactor for $8 billion that might power a million homes, let's go ahead and scale that back and say, let's just buy it hundred megawatts at a time, power a hundred thousand homes, and instead only make a $500 million investment. And so it allows them to incrementally add demand um, which is going to be better for their balance sheet. It reduces the overall risk and still enables them to kind of deploy this firm, um, clean energy that we think is really going to be complementary to the other uh, clean energy sources they're bringing online. So I think this kind of intersection of all these factors is what kind of pushes us towards the idea of small modular reactors and how that could potentially play a really big role in climate change.
0: Yeah, and, and obviously, uh, you know, back in the day, you had to site these huge reactors near you know, a water source. You're really constrained where you could put them safety and near a water source and things like that. And with SMRs, I'm assuming basically just about safety, you don't need to be near a water source for that, right?
1: Yep, and so it's gonna be an interesting challenge as we start talking about the design of these reactors. Um, it's the, the term we use in the nuclear industry is the ultimate heat sink. With any kind of thermal energy source, whether you're burning coal or using nuclear fuel, you ultimately need to remove the heat that wasn't used to make electricity and so historically that has been like you said put it next to a large body of water and use that water to cool the to cool the reactor or cool the secondary systems the challenge with that again is siting, and then also what are the environmental impacts of things like using a large amount of water and then to start, and then essentially let it releasing it at higher temperatures and so the nuclear industry today is really cognizant of making sure that it minimizes the environmental impact on communities and on the environment. But as we look forward into the future, water resources are unfortunately probably going to become less uh, less available, not more available. And so reactor developers are looking at things like dry cooling as a way to potentially reduce or even further reduce their water demands. So with some nuclear power plants and um new scale right now is a small a small modular reactor company out of Oregon. They're looking at what they call dry natural convection cooling method or direct air cooling with the idea that they'll actually essentially have large radiators that you can essentially move air over to remove the heat as opposed to having to bring water in and have it remove the heat. So it could kind of f- fully decouple your nuclear power plant from having a lake, a river, or an ocean nearby. And I think that's something that we're going to see as these nuclear power plants try to get sited so they can think about how they're interacting with the community and what sites are available. The other thing I'll just add in terms of citing when it comes to safety is really the idea of what is the impact of nuclear power plants on the surrounding communities. With the nuclear power plants we operate today, we'll often talk about the emergency planning zone around the reactor. And so this is essentially an area five miles or 10 miles around a reactor where we will work with communities to say, okay, if there's a severe nuclear accident, we need to talk about what the precautions are going to be. Are people going to need to shelter in place? Are, Are people going to need to evacuate? Are they going to need to take uh, substances like uh, iodine pills to try to reduce the impacts of radiation absorption? A lot of this can have both financial and psychological and social costs on a community. And so there's a really big interest from advanced nuclear companies to say, how can we try to eliminate that so that in the future, a nuclear power plant will not pose those types of either real or perceived risks on the surrounding communities and its neighbors? How can a nuclear power plant be a better neighbor? And so with some of these small modular reactors, they thought about the safety case of their technology, and they've essentially used more kind of passive or inherent safety mechanisms that reduce the need for having large pumps, large valves, large emergency safety systems. And that even in the worst case accident, you won't have these large releases of radioactive material that cause or essentially necessitate having emergency evacuations. The best example of that that we've seen so far is the new scale reactor that I mentioned earlier. They've worked very hard with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to show that under every single possible accident condition, that there will be no evacuations needed outside their plant boundary. So even in the worst case of a worst case accident in a new scale plant, there'll be no need to have evacuations, and that essentially the entire accident will be contained on site. And so this is kind of a really big advantage, I think, when you talk about, one, the the safety profile of the reactor is really exciting, but two, when you talk about how it interacts with members of the public, it's potentially a big game changer. And thinking about, can the nuclear reactor down the street be a good neighbor and not something that we have to worry about?
0: I'm going to switch gears to nuclear fuel. With the situation in Russia, for example, what does the, the supply of nuclear fuel look like? Is it impacting uh, nuclear plant building or licensing plans at this point?
1: When we talk about nuclear fuel, it's a very interesting kind of global market. Nuclear fuel is something where there are a bunch of parts of the supply chain, and it's really interesting in terms of what countries are major players in each one of it. So, when we think about kind of what does it take to actually get the nuclear fuel that goes into the reactor, the first thing that you have to do is mine uranium ore. And so, this is kind of available around the world. So, there are major supplies in Canada, in Kazakhstan, and Australia. Those tend to be kind of the top three producers, with other countries uh, having smaller shares. You then go through a process called conversion where you actually take that uranium ore and then you convert it into a gaseous form, what's called uranium hexafluoride. And that's essentially a gas form that you can use to then do kind of further conversion steps into the nuclear fuel that we're actually interested in. And so those conversion facilities are really kind of focused, there's uh, some in the United States, Netherlands, UK, Russia. And the final step is something called enrichment. So with enrichment, what we're really interested in doing is changing the ratio of two isotopes in the uranium fuel Um, specifically Uranium-235 and Uranium-238. So Uranium-235 is an isotope of Uranium that we really want for nuclear reactors. It's a type of Uranium that's very easy to fission or to split and release energy. And for the reactors that we currently use, we need to go from the natural level of enrichment, which is about 0.7%, to an enrichment level of about 4 to 5%. And so we do that in what are called enrichment facilities, and most commonly gas centrifuge facilities. And those, that's kind of a technology that's very well protected just in terms of the opportunities for nuclear proliferation and concerns around states getting access to enrichment technology. And so enrichment facilities are really limited in a much smaller number of countries, including Russia, France, and the United States. Then the final step is you take that enriched uranium, turn it into fuel. The reason I kind of tell that whole backstory is that when we start talking about uranium fuel and what the impact of Russia is on the market, Russia and specifically the Russian state-owned company Tenex controls a large percentage of not the mining but actually the conversion and the enrichment services so kind of that back end and so as the United States is starting to look at kind of ensuring the fuel supply for its existing nuclear reactors the question is okay what percentage of our enriched fuel comes from Russia and how can we potentially shift to other suppliers or other countries to make sure that we're not relying on Russia to power all of our U.S. reactors Right now, it's not a near-term issue. Uh, the, despite the, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the challenges that we're having with international markets, uh, the uranium markets are still functioning. Um, it's something where they've kind of talked about uranium diplomacy kind of being beyond the scope of normal diplomacy, just because everyone recognizes that it's kind of a special material. Um, but there is a lot of interest in the United States about how can we build more supply of these conversion and enrichment facilities in the U.S. to eliminate any kind of dependence on Russia. So, in the near term, for the reactors that we're looking at in the United States, the nuclear reactors that we're currently operating that provide 20% of our power, it's something that we're concerned about. We don't want to be dependent on Russia, but it's not necessarily something that's impacting the operation of the existing fleet. And there are a number of programs that the U.S. Department of Energy that are looking at trying to how to are looking to incentivize essentially the construction of new enrichment and conversion capabilities. For advanced reactors, the story is a little bit different. So, like I said, with the existing fleet, we take our natural uranium at about 0.7 percent and we enrich it up to about 5 percent. And there are facilities all around the world that can do that type of enrichment. For advanced reactors, because we're going to these newer fuel forms that I mentioned earlier and these new reactor coolants, we actually need to further enrich the fuel to what's called high-assay, low-enriched uranium, which is a really weird term for saying high-enriched, low-enriched uranium. So instead of going up to 5%, we're going up closer to 20% uh, uranium-235. And while that's something that's been done historically in the United States, we have the technology, we know how to do it, we currently don't have any industrial facilities that can produce it. And the only industrial facility around the world that can produce this high-assay, low-enriched uranium commercially is 10X out of Russia. So if you're looking at trying to build an advanced reactor right now that requires HALU, there's only one game in town. And that's something where I think there's a really big concern Do we want to be reliant on Russia as the only potential source for our advanced nuclear fuel going forward? And so this has been a really big push in Congress and among the American nuclear industry to try to figure out how can we try to build kind of a more robust commercial supply chain. In the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed last year by the U.S. Congress, there was actually $700 million allocated to the U.S. Department of Energy to kind of investigate how to build up a commercial program in the United States to produce HALU. It's something where these programs can take a few years to come online. So we're definitely interested in trying to push it as quick as possible. If only because if we're interested in deploying this reactor technology in the late 2030s, we've kind of got to go quickly. We've got to figure out how to get these the, the financing and the production of these facilities up and running so we can have the fuel ready when our reactor demonstrations are coming online.
0: That's great. So we talked a little bit about currently operating reactors and safety. Now, what are the safety concerns associated with the increased use of nuclear power, and and how are they being addressed?
1: Yeah, so when it comes to the safety of nuclear power plants, a lot of it comes down to what are the potential hazards of the facility, and then what are the systems, structures, components, programs, and operations they're really doing to ensure safety. So in the United States with the existing fleet— The nuclear regulatory commission has done a lot of work to basically ensure that the u.s power plants are secure against what they call a whole suite of design basis accidents and so this is the regulator going through it independently assessing that it can withstand any types of internal things that can happen in the plant like if there's a break or if there's a fire but also external events what happens if there's an earthquake what happens if there's a tornado a hurricane a tsunami a terrorist attack They go through all these situations and say, can we prove that the plant can operate safely and shut down safely without the release of radiation? And so that's a big set of analyses that the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission leads and then works with companies to make sure that's implemented correctly. Are all their pumps going to be able to operate under emergency conditions? Do they have the right backup systems? And so this has been a long-running push in the United States to really make sure that we're pushing for operational safety. One thing that we saw as a kind of a further increase of safety was after the 2011 Fukushima Daiichi nuclear accident in Japan, there was a big concern about what we call beyond design basis accidents. What if there's some crazy accident that nobody had never really foreseen, but that might threaten the safety of the plant? And so the US operator said, do you know what? That's a good point. We can always be safer. Let's try to think there's a robust way to add safety on top of this. And so what they did is they implemented a program called FLEX, which is flexible response to nuclear power accidents i'd have to double check that exact acronym but it's the flex program is what they describe and so what it consists of is essentially giving operators additional tools on site so if there is a severe accident if there's something that goes beyond what anyone had ever thought do the operators have the tools the the backup generators the pumps the valves the um, even equipment like bulldozers to try to clear out debris if let's say there was a major flood to try to keep the plant in a safe condition and so all of the plants in the united states currently have their flex bunker which is essentially a large, hardened structure on site that stores all this emergency backup equipment that's tested on a quarterly basis. So even if the worst case or the worst case happens, they've got the tools they need to respond to any type of accident. On top of that, they also have what are called their flex response centers, which is an agreement between all the United States nuclear power plants to have two regional response hubs that are just literally facilities that are located in fairly remote areas with large amounts of emergency backup equipment that can be deployed to any nuclear power plant in the United States within 24 hours. And so the idea really there is that if you had a severe accident, even if all the plant's initial safety systems are compromised, even if the reactor operators aren't able to solve the problem with their flex equipment that they already have on site in a hardened bunker, there's a third layer of kind of defense in depth as we call it, to help make sure that they've got the tools they need. And so there's really kind of a robust safety culture there. And I think that's something that's gonna permeate through as we're kind of thinking about advanced reactors moving forward that culture of safety of both what do the operators do? How do they consider the safety of their plant paramount? And then what are independent regulators like the Nuclear Regulatory Commission really doing to make sure that they're safe? So I've got a lot of confidence in it. Um, I really encourage anyone, if you go, if you ever have a chance to visit a nuclear power plant, talk to the operators there. They take a lot of pride in what they do and really saying, okay, these are people that live in the community and they want to make sure they're operated safely. So I think if we're really talking about advanced nuclear energy moving forward, uh, a larger amount of energy nuclear energy, I don't really see significant increase in risks, and inc- I even more see it as, hey, this is going to be a big improvement in our air quality and things along those lines, if you're interested in kind of the big picture on uh, safety and human health.
0: Great. That's great, Patrick. Thank you. So we're going to transition to uh, the last segment of our interview, which is called Underrated or Overrated. So I will uh, read Patrick a list of items, and Patrick can talk about whether he thinks they're underrated or overrated. So we'll we'll kick it off with for fun with Somerville, Massachusetts.
1: Uh, Somerville, Massachusetts. It's underrated. It's my hometown, uh, just north of Boston. Great little community. uh, Fun place to live.
0: Awesome. Uh, The transition to electric vehicles or EVs?
1: I think overrated in the near term, underrated in the long term. I think uh, it's going to take a little bit of time to get there, but I think once they do get there, they're going to have a huge impact on the way we think about transportation, and electricity usage.
0: Enrico Fermi.
1: Oh, underrated. Absolute, uh Personal hero in terms of the nuclear energy space, in ter- uh, someone that made huge contributions to uh, nuclear energy and the technology we have today.
0: Going to a school with a football team.
1: Oh, totally overrated. Someone that went to Carnegie Mellon and MIT. Um, I can tell you I was in the the marching band at Carnegie Mellon, so I went to all the football games, but I still think it's a little overrated.
0: The Fusion Ignition Breakthrough last year at Livermore Labs.
1: Yeah, so I would say overrated on that one. Um, it's something where it's a really cool science experiment, but I still think there's going to be a lot of work to figure out how we can get commercial energy, uh, commercial fusion or fusion energy commercialized in the United States.
0: Using artificial intelligence or AI for engineering tasks. That's a, that's a really good one.
1: I have to say overrated right now, I think underrated in the future. I think we still need to figure out how to do it effectively, how you can make the best use of uh, AI in that.
0: Voluntary carbon credits in the U.S.?
1: Underrated for the moment. We'll see what what role they ultimately play in the market.
0: An engineering degree.
1: Ooh, underrated. I think you can do a ton of stuff with an engineering degree. Always a good thing to have in your back pocket.
0: Liquid-fueled, molten salt, cooled reactors.
1: Overrated. I think this is someone that people on the internet love to talk about, thorium-fueled reactors. There are a lot more challenges than let on, and you'll find those out as you start doing the design.
0: Speaking of design, open source software for nuclear engineering, such as OpenMC for reactor core design.
1: Ooh, underrated. I think this is a really cool opportunity to have kind of a a transparent way of developing really cool reactor tools and make sure you get all the best scientists involved in the
0: process. Carnegie Mellon's nuclear engineering program.
1: Oh, I would love to say it was overrated, uh, but it, it's, it's a little underrated, if only because it uh, actually lapsed in the 1990s. And so I did all my engineering nuclear, I did all my nuclear engineering work at uh, University of Pittsburgh, uh, right down the street, taking night classes in nuclear engineering.
0: And finally, the movie Dr. Strangelove, starring Peter Sellers.
1: Oh, underrated, amazing film. If you ever want to get terrified about the uh, nuclear military industrial complex, it's always great to sit down and watch Dr. Strangelove.
0: Awesome. Well, Patrick, thank you for spending time with us, the Stay Blog podcast. Really appreciate it. And uh, wishing you the best at the Nuclear Innovation Alliance.
1: Great. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Wonderful discussion with you this this afternoon.
0: You were listening to the Stay Podcast. You can listen anywhere you listen to podcasts. For example, Apple Podcasts. Please like, subscribe, and comment. And you can also find us on stayblog.substack.com. Thanks. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that.